Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. You know, Brooklynites have been snapping pictures since the 1840s. And here at Brooklyn Historical Society, our collections reflect that history. We have upwards of 50,000 images in our library. One thing I love about BHS's photography collection is that it features so much work from women photographers, both amateur and professional, who have documented the landscapes and people who make Brooklyn what it is. In this episode, we're going to look at the work and the experiences of a group of women photographers capturing Brooklyn. You just got really interested in exploring where we fail when we try, like, when you, everyone's trying to sort of control their image and, and put themselves in a certain light. And then the like magic where you really see the person is kind of in the little bits where they, they fail to hold that up. Um, you know, and that's where the person kind of shines through is that gap between those two. With Lucille, she would catch these amazing scenes. It was almost like the camera was connected to her eye and her brain. She captures these moments that we all have as New Yorkers, as Brooklynites. I think there's, there's a piece of everyone in her work. In Lucille's work, everybody can feel like they know a little bit about Brooklyn when they look at her work. So I hope to leave enough documents here on this earth that when I'm gone, people could learn about um, my experiences and learn about my life by the documents that I leave here. So that's why I have a lot of work to do. So I'm going to continue to just, you know, continue photographing and documenting people and create a historical record here that would be as, you know, valid and as I could make it. Today we're talking with Nora Herding, an artist and photographer who lives in Brooklyn. Nora collaborated with Brooklyn Historical Society a few years back on a really wonderful project called The Face of Brooklyn, and we're going to dive into that a little bit today. So, Nora, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. Thanks. Will you just tell us a little bit and our listeners a little about The Face of Brooklyn project? The uh, Brooklyn Historical Society had a fellowship program. The Historical Society just opened up their doors to the collection and we were tasked with this like this wonderful problem of just looking through the collection and making a piece in response to a piece in the collection. So I had um, I had been working a lot with sort of the aesthetics of commercial portraiture. Mm-hmm. I had this fantasy that I was going to like find the Brooklyn James Vanderzee, you know, oh, in the Brooklyn Historical right. Society. That I was thinking there'd be all these wonderful. Um, portraits that depicted, you know, the way like Italians in Brooklyn wanted to be photographed or the Jewish community, um, the African-American community. And, and and I was really surprised because none of that existed. 
Um, in the 19th century, it was mostly uh, families in Brooklyn Heights that uh, gifted their family albums. And mm-hmm. so what I saw over and over and over again was um, upper middle class uh, Anglo-Saxons um, and c- was just sort of shocked uh, because that wasn't, you know, the Brooklyn that I knew. So I decided that I was going to not make one image um, in response to this. Instead of responding to something that was there, I was going to fill a void that I saw in the collection because there were a lot of people that weren't represented. So uh, I decided to basically make this sort of guerrilla pop-up studio that I put in like a push cart. And I went to a series of parks around the borough. And I had a big sign that was like, like who's, who's the face of Brooklyn? And uh, curious people would just come up and say, hey, what are you doing? And I would sort of explain it to them. And the exchange was that I would gift everyone a portrait. So people volunteered to do this. Um, as, As you did this project, did you come to see or think come up with an, a thing of like, this is what Brooklyn looks like. This is the face of Brooklyn. How did you Yeah, it's see? pretty hard. Um, I've been asked before, like, to choose a few pictures right. from this. And it's like, how do you do that? Because really the piece is the collection of them. Um, and, you know, the, the diversity of them. Um, so it's pretty difficult. You know, I think that for each person, they might see one photo and say, oh, yeah, this is, you know, this, this looks like my Brooklyn or like my reality. Did it change your understanding of Brooklyn? I mean, you're a Brooklynite. You know, we all love the place and but also recognize its um, its complexity. Did you walk away from this project having a different understanding of the place that you call home? Um, I I did. I felt like it challenged some stereotypes that I had uh, around who I would find maybe. You know, like I went to McCarran Park in Williamsburg. And, and actually, it was the morning, and, and it was a lot of um, Little League kids and families, like Polish families and other, you know, and, and in my mind, it was like, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be a bunch of kids in their, their mid-20s, um, you know. So, it, like, if you stay for a little while in the place, like, you spend all day kind of, um, you you really see that there's there's a lot of different people. And, like, the city has its own time so certain people come out at certain times and you know use the parks in different ways so also because it's set in a park I mean it's very contextual it's again like I'm a you know I'm a white woman in my 30s taking the pictures and I think that there's you know that's a filter for who came up to me um you know I was sort of stationary so I was happy to take anybody but then also because it's in a park you also see like in the collection different people like a lot of kids sometimes people are like at the green market with their groceries or playing tennis in in Fort Greene so um so it, it starts to be a little bit about the place too I'm I'm interested by this um the idea of the photographer being present you said that you kind of sensed what maybe were some of your um, limitations because of who you were. Mm-hmm. I wonder, looking at it the other way, what were some of the things do you think that you brought to the project, that you brought to these photographs that reflect uniquely on, on who you were? Oh, wow, good question. Um, it's, it's an exchange. So if the person was going to give me their time and their image to ultimately, like, use and for the Brooklyn Historical Society use, I wanted to give them something back. So 
it was actually big labor to organize all the prints and mail all of these out to all of the recipients. Um, afterwards, <laughs> I might have underestimated that. Um, but that, I think, is something I brought to it that was a really important component to me. Um, and then to see people when the when we did have a reception at the Brooklyn Historical Society and a talk, some of you know the people who participated showed up and um, one man has written, wrote me a letter because his uncle I photographed his uncle and his uncle passed away shortly mm. after that. They were on their way to a Cyclones game in Coney Island. And he wrote me a letter saying, you know, his his uncle was a lifelong Brooklynite and that it was a real honor to think that his uncle's now part of the collection here. Wow. So between the chills. Yeah. yeah and it really was, does what you're describing does sound so much like oral history because yeah, there's yeah, this yeah. sort of, you know, this this phrase and standard in oral history called shared authority and it's the idea that you created something together, that it's not after you give you know, you do it you give an oral history, it's something that is as much yours as it is the institutions or the interviewer who who initiated it. And that really does sound like you had an experience like that with photography, which captures Something very different, I think, than the voice, but I think equally is as powerful, right? Yeah, and I, I, well, I think, you know, there's probably a lot of conversations around, like, who has the authority in the image and who's taking the picture. And, you know, if you go back to us talking about, like, the photos that are in the collection, like, there's certainly a history of people being photographed that have no power by institutions, whether it's medical institutions or, like, schools or prisons or... You know, um, and, you know, this is certainly not to say that the Brooklyn Historical Society is any of those. But, um, you know, I think for some of the people who participated in the project that there's maybe a real wariness around, um, Mm -hmm. you know, participating or loaning their image. Um, So I really tried to neutralize um, my own uh, editorial style and really just set up a structure for people to show up as they wanted to show up. It's funny because it makes me think about um, the the way that capturing someone's photograph can be can be um, in a reflection of unequal power relations, almost menacing as you describe. But then also the kind of opportunity historically that photography created, and I'm just thinking of Carte de Visite in the 1860s was a fad embraced not just by white Americans, but by African Americans who for the first time in their history kind of had control over the imagery that was created about them rather mm-hmm. than the sort of the racist images drawn mm-hmm. by, by white uh-huh. people mm-hmm. that reinforce stereotypes. And so there's this fascinating kind of play of power of something being both potentially oppressive and also a pen- potentially freeing. Mm-hmm. That's probably also what's interesting, like why the work of James Van Der Zee and those photographs in the Harlem Renaissance are so yeah. beautiful because maybe there's just this real enthusiasm. People had control um, of their image. I'm so struck by the white background, um, and it's such an interesting editorial choice. Can you talk, talk a little bit about that? I wanted something that was consistent so the individual of uh, each person's expression could show up. It was, um, a lot of it was an aesthetic choice, mm. really. It, it was actually technically pretty challenging. <laughs> it would have been a lot easier if I had just, you know, photographed them in, in the park with the backgrounds that they had. 
I'm struck by the the color. Not everyone knows how to take pictures of people with different shades of skin color. Yeah. Um, either stark because white background, <laughs> yeah, right? Because yeah. either the way the film is developed or the way the the photograph is lighted. Um, you know, sometimes brown skin looks like green or blue or so tell me a little bit how cuz all of your pictures they, they they look like they capture you know, people's natural skin, skin color. color yeah so how Thank tell me you. how you got That's to do a that big compliment because it's really difficult um well i had actually had a little bit of experience with this uh i did a project with also around portraiture with school kids where they uh they got to basically conceive of their own picture and that would help them orchestrate it but a lot of those kids were african-american and i i had the prints just printed up commercially and they were yeah they were terrible um because uh, basically, I think the algorithms are skewed, like in you know, in Photoshop, in the cameras, in printing, for Caucasian skin. And so, what happens is that, um, yeah, it'll it'll either it'll make their like skin like incredibly dark, or the tone is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sent them all back because I was like, this is terrible. You know, uh, this this doesn't look like these people. So. I just had to pay a lot of attention to it. And in the final ones and the printed ones that are part of the collection, I sent several back to the printers um, as well because they just weren't right. So it's really great that you noticed that. Um, and yeah, like sometimes the tone is, you know, picks up co- like tone, which was hard because it was also in a park. So a mm-hmm. lot of times there was green casts, you know, mm-hmm. coming. Um, so I just, yeah, I just paid a lot of attention um, to trying to, to render everybody. You know, nobody's really the same shade and there's a lot of different in the spectrum and to try to make sure that that was preserved in the print. But I think it takes an extra um, an extra amount of attention because like many things in the world, uh, they're, they're just, it's, ca- it's calibrated for, um, for people with light skin. Let's pull back a little bit. And I mean, I want, I think we want to hear just a little bit about your, your development, your genesis as a photographer. Like everybody, I think this is my first relationship with photography was as a subject, right? And, and one that didn't have control. Uh, I have like really distinct memories of terribly awkward like photos that we would go get at like the the Sears Portrait Studio or my kindergarten um, picture, which my mother said, "Oh, you you know, be sure to smile." So I practiced my smile <laughs> all day, and when the picture came out, I had this like I was like basically like chewing on my lip. I was like eating my face. <laughs> uh, my mother was like, "What is this? This isn't you." And so it started with like a really fraught. Um, relationship around like my image and I think that a lot of photographers really hate to be on the other side of the lens and I certainly was that way Um, but then I I got interested in sort of genre portraiture when I started thinking about um, you know being in art school and and doing all the studying and as that happened I was making more and more sort of esoteric work and, and I thought about my mother and I thought, what is the photos that my are most important to my mother? And I was like, well, they're the pictures of her kids. You know, it's the subject. It's not the aesthetics. Um, and that just started, you know, got me kind of interested in, um, you know, the origins like carte de visite. But really, it's actually even back to um, 
portrait portrait painting, you know, and that it's the social code that we have. And we still have. It hasn't really evolved that much. Um, So I became really interested in that and and sort of the, the performance that happens around a portrait being taken or an image being captured in the way a person um, is really in some ways really just trying to put on a cliche you know and an archetype so whether it's like the nuclear family and everyone's matching outfits and their sweaters match and like that goes back to you know these backdrops with the landed gentry and they're being painted with all the property that they own and like their women and children that are their property too um, you know, and and how that's kind of been passed down, and and that there's some vestiges still of, of us, you know, putting this or the business, you know, the businessman and his his serious, you know, tie, and um, you just got really interested in exploring that, and then kind of exploring where we fail when we try, like when you everyone's trying to sort of control their image and, and put themselves in a certain light, and then. The like magic where you really see the person is kind of in the little bits where they they fail to hold that up, um, you know, and that's where the person kind of shines through is that gap between those two. Zahir and I went back and forth when we were thinking about this episode because it was so important for us to sort of honor the women photographers in our collection without like without essentializing them, um, right. without saying you know like how does your how does your gender influence your approach? Because do we say the same thing to male photographers, right? right? right. I'm, but at the same time, I think I'm going to ask you <laughs> something yeah, like that. Essentially, yeah, question. Because yeah, you don't want to like you don't want to diminish what one does to just the fact that like the reason why you're important is because you're a woman. That that is important. You talked about how like your experience of becoming a photographer was was being as a subject we have to like think about or we maybe think about the context for how women have been depicted in photographs right has not been from a position of equality and so that's why it is significant to have women be photographers yeah you know so how do you feel if you feel like that has played a role in your work either in terms of you know in terms of subjects but also in terms of a photographer yeah i've it's a it's a valid question. Um, it's a difficult question to ask because in some ways, like how do you control for that variable? Right. You know, I, I have I can't compare it right. because. Right. Uh, but again, I do think you know when, um, you know, maybe not all work, but when you're in a situation where some people are doing documentary work or you're doing work where you're photographing other people, there's a relationship involved, and I'm sure that there's times where that's been a disadvantage being a woman and there's probably been times where it's been an advantage being a woman right um you know uh because i wonder if i had gone into some of these communities as a man and was not from that community if people would approach me at all right so in some ways um being not you know physically unassuming might really be to to an advantage um and not being threatening in a physical way would be beneficial um, I don't know as an artist I think everybody's walking around making work that's filtered through them and and so you know I've had my experience as a woman and I think it comes out in my work I, I look at some of my other work and I think oh there's this thing where there's like a lot of angry girls in some of these pictures like I never realized <laughs> that I wonder what that means you know and um, 
that probably wouldn't be a subject matter that I would be that keen to explore if I was I was a man. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps I also have empathy around the subject not feeling like they have control of their image because, you know, as a woman, um, right, like we don't necessarily have control of wi- like women in general and their image, you know, and, um, you know, women and, and women's bodies being used to commercialize and sell things for a long, long time. Love this podcast? Then head over to iTunes and search for Flatbush in Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. We're so excited to have our colleague Julie May uh, to join us on this episode. Julie is the Managing Director of Brooklyn Historical Society's Library and Archives. Nobody here knows the photography collections quite as well as Julie does, and so we've brought her on today to talk about one photography collection that is very special to all three of us. So, Julie, welcome. Thank you. And let's start off by talking a little bit about Lucille Fornasieri Gold. Who is she? And tell us about her and her collections. Lucille was born and raised in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, in 1930. <clears throat> uh, she comes from an Italian family. She studied something like biology or physics, something in the sciences, wow. which is really surprising, mm-hmm. not nothing art-related. But she never graduated. She uh, got married right at the end of her coursework, and she was a wife and mother. <clears throat> I don't know when it quite happened, but she was wooed by her second husband, and um, I think they kind of ran off together mm. and uh, hightailed it to Europe for a few years. And when uh, they came back, she picked up the camera. I think it was in the late 60s. Uh, she was gifted a camera by her husband. I believe it was a Leica, not too shabby. Very nice camera, very nice lens. Good gift. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> very nice gift. Would love one of those for myself. And uh, she would walk around Brooklyn and, and take photographs. So she would drop her kid off at school, Lenny, and uh, walk around. What what kinds of uh, things struck her eye? What, just tell us about her subjects or, or the ways that she shot Brooklyn. Well, she is most likely categorized as a street photographer. That's probably the easiest way to describe her. And with Lucille, she would catch these amazing scenes. It was almost like the camera was connected to her eye and her brain. You can just imagine this little lady. She was... I don't think she was five feet at her best, at her at her youngest. She would walk around Brooklyn. We're going to put up a bunch of her pictures in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who are listening, go check those out while we're talking about this. And you can look while we talk. But what are some, like, what are, if you had to describe her photography to somebody who couldn't see them, like, what are some of the words that you would use? Surprising. Unknown. Funny. Funny. Political. Mm-hmm. Uh socioeconomic mm-hmm. uh, gentrification layered like I always feel like there's a lot yeah. of things going on in her photographs and they but yet they seem effortless right well they yeah. they sound effortless yeah. by the way she describes <laughs> taking them which could be modesty or you know um, a documentary I got a documentary sense yeah. from them. I mean, there's definitely there's an artistic thing in terms of the framing and the composition, but I definitely got a kind of documentary feel from a lot of the images that I've seen. Well, that's kind of the combination of street photography, mm-hmm. right? Is that you photograph your environments and you 
inevitably catch some of the details of current everyday sort of infrastructure. Yeah, she like both captures a place and people without biasing to one or the other, which is kind of a remarkable skill and makes you realize that you kind of can't separate those Mm -hmm. two things out. Like when you're thinking about Brooklyn in the 20th century, can you separate out like the diversity of Brooklynites, the quirkiness of Brooklynites, the different kinds of people who live in different neighborhoods from the the very history of the place? Yeah. And you never get a sense um, that she was exploiting her subjects, right? Like there's a sense that she's part of Mm -hmm. the people that Mm -hmm. she's taking pictures of. Well, she was. I mean, she was born and raised here. She lived in Brooklyn. She lived in a, she bought, she and her husband bought an apartment on Ocean Parkway. You know, they lived there, you know, forever. And she, she would take the subway. She would drive a car. She would walk around. She would walk her dog. She loved dogs. She photographed lots of dogs. She was a regular person just like anybody else. So she was photographing her neighbors. Right. And she took her son out sometimes with her, right? Yeah. Lenny is photographed in a lot of, uh, in a lot of her, her street scenes. Um, and he would, there's one photograph it's at the, I believe, the southern end of Prospect Park. And they, you know, they lived in Kensington, so that makes sense. And there's a, a water fountain, and it's covered in graffiti. And then there are stray dogs running behind the kids. And he's playing with these kids around this water fountain. So how did you come to know her work, and how did she come to be such an important sort of friend to Brooklyn Historical Society? Well, she was shopping around a book. So she and her husband, Jack, made an appointment with uh, President of BHS, Deborah Schwartz, and Deborah invited me to the meeting. As a photo archivist at the time, I was invited to sort of evaluate the work. You know, is this good? Is this not good? You know, my two cents. She ended up donating her collection of photographs. So she donated 93 photographs in 2008. And then from there, you know, we just we cataloged the photographs. We did her oral history. And ever since then, she's been a dear friend to the institution, and she became a dear friend of mine. You were the photo archivist. You'd clearly seen lots and lots of, of photographs. Tell me, when you first saw her, her early, your first time seeing her pictures, what was it about it that jumped at you and said, yes, we, we want these? Well, I guess this is the kind of collection that you that you really like at a place like Brooklyn Historical Society, right? Because it's just like what we were talking about before, that that combination, that confluence of of documentary and aesthetic. So if I were to collect all the photographs that just straight documented Brooklyn, it would be boring. And when you look at one of her photographs, it's like she she has documented the way you felt on Tuesday. And then she documented a different feeling on Saturday. And then she she captures these moments that we all have as New Yorkers, as Brooklynites, that, uh, you know, not every photographer does, right? And so she, she not only captured, like, one of our board members bought one of her photographs that had in the background the name of a store that his friend's father and grandfather had owned, hmm. wow. right? And, and so she captures those things, but then she captured, like, this lady... I don't know how she did this photograph, but it was in the parking lot. And I told you she loves dogs, right? There's this woman covered in tattoos. At least that's how I remember it. And she's holding on to this ferocious dog who probably weighed more than Lucille by the studded collar while while Lucille is in front of the dog wow. taking a picture, you know? And, and so 
you know, it's it's all these moments. Like, you know you've run into that dog. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, how fearless she had to be to, like, get all up and snap that. Right, right. As, and I think similarly about one that I love, which is the one of the man who is sunbathing with the, oh, yeah. with the reflective thing. And he, she is right up in his face taking that picture. Yeah, I wonder if he even knew she was there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great photograph and also a little horrifying because yes. we would never do that now. I mean, when I go to the beach, I'm covered. And it's black and, <laughs> and, it's, and, it's black and white, but you can, you know how oh, yeah, yeah, is. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. skin is like leather. <laughs> yeah. But you get it, right? I yeah, mean, that's yeah. really, yeah. that's her beauty. So Lucille passed away in 2016 mm-hmm. to the heartbreak of everyone here at BHS and so many people. Tell us, like, what do you think, how would you characterize her legacy? She probably has two legacies, right, for for the friends and family who knew her. She was just such a lovely little lady. We all loved her so much. And to the people who, well, even to, to me, who I look at her photographs all the time, you know, I'll still never really know all of Lucille. You know, she had her secrets, and and she was photographing from that point of view. And, you know, I just get to look at them over and over again and wonder about her. For her her work, I think um, I think there's there's a piece of everyone in her work. In Lucille's work, everybody can feel like they know a little bit about Brooklyn when they look at her work. There are just endless things to see in her photographs. So, Julie, do you have a favorite image of that Lucille took? I think I actually do. I think it's hard to choose just one image that that you like, but I do have one. And, and um, you know, here at BHS, I look at a lot of 19th century photographs, which I'm lucky I get to do that. And there's a little bit of longing in some of those photographs because on a on a glass plate neg or a glass plate slide, the crispness is so beautiful. And I just don't I don't think I've found that yet in the in the digital photograph world. Um, but there's but there's a longing also for that contemporary connection that you make with a photograph made today, right? So, so there's this one photograph of Lucille's. It's this little girl, and she's uh, looking out a window, and uh, there's a curtain blowing behind her, and there's very little color, or the color is very subtle in the photograph. And so, to me, it looks like a hand-colored lantern slide or something, or or hand-colored negative. And it's just stunning. I mean, it could be a little girl in the 19th century, but it was probably a little girl in like the 1990s. And she's in the Lower East Side. And, you know, the red just flies off the off the print or the, the image. It's just it's just gorgeous. It's this perfect. It, it's sort of for me, it captures photography in this one image, as well as Lucille's style. She, like the little girl, has got to be daydreaming herself in order to have noticed this little girl looking out her window. It's lovely. How does one become a photographer? When we dove into our oral history collections, we found out the answer to that question was as varied as the people who took up this craft. In this segment, we're going to listen to three such voices. First up, Lucille Fornisteri Gold, whose life and work we just discussed with Julie May. Then, Marianne Engberg, who was trained as a photographer in Denmark and moved to Brooklyn in the 1960s. And finally, Delphine Fawundo Buford, 
An artist who was born and raised in Crown Heights and whose work has been featured at many institutions, including Brooklyn Historical Society. Well, I had a friend, um, a neighbor, who, who did photography in, uh, in an amateur way also. So uh, he had a little dark room in his kitchen, and uh, I borrowed his camera a couple of times, and, you know, I started, you know, that way. It was a little hard for me when we came back from North Rondale to find a job as a photographer. It was very different than in Denmark. In Denmark, a lot of the photographers were women. In commercial photography in this country, they didn't have women as a commercial photographers in 1963. So there was a Swiss woman and me were kind of the only ones in commercial photography. So uh, time has changed completely. I, in a way, think there are more women in photography today than than uh, men. I really do, but I, I don't know about that. But I have a feeling. So I ran into the perfect person for me. His name was Jay Frederick Smith. He had just opened his own studio, and he had been an illustrator. And illustration started photography, took over for illustration. So he said, I'm going to do photography instead of... But he didn't know the technical side of it. Mm-hmm. So we ran into each other. So that was a perfect match. I knew all the technical, and he had all the money. So we worked together for five years. When I went to Sierra Leone for the first time, my, um, my, my father's from Sierra Leone and my mother's from Guinea, West Africa. And when I went there, I had my brother's camera. And I was just taking all of these pictures and then I realized, wow, I really like taking photos. And then I looked at them when I got back and I said, you know what? Oh, it's real funny. On the same roll of film that I had the um, photos from Africa, I had photos from Bobby Brown, of Bobby Brown at a concert who I was absolutely in love with. And then, I looked at the photos and I said, this looks like what they have in the magazines. Like, this is not far. Like, I have some good shots here. And then that's when I started exploring it a little bit. Um, Someone came in to, I was working at a record company, and someone came in with some photos that they were selling. And I said, wait a second. There's not a big difference between what I'm doing and what they're doing. And then that's when I started, you know, really getting into it and then just taught myself everything and then started learning as much as possible as I could about it. And that's that's what it is. That's the other thing I would tell you. When you want to do something, learn everything about it. Go study people who, who, who did it. And school, you don't have to... I mean, of course, you go to school and everything, but I didn't learn about photography in school. I actually went to the library and did research and got lost in the library and just <laughs> looked up every photographer. So I could go to a photography, you know, someone with their MFA and have real conversations about, you know, other photographers who of big names and they would think that I studied somewhere, but I really learned about it all on my own because it was something I was really passionate about. So when you want to do something, study, go and research. Don't wait for anyone to teach you. Just go and find out as much as possible as you can about it. So I hope to leave enough documents here on this earth that when I'm gone, people could learn about um, my experiences and learn about my life by the documents that I leave here. So that's why I have a lot of work to do. So I'm going to continue to just, you know, continue photographing and documenting people and create a historical record here that would be as, you know, valid and as I could make it. So these are three really, I think, really distinct and really unique journeys um, and points of view. One thing that really jumped out to me while we were listening to them all together is the blurring between an idea of an amateur photographer 
and a professional photographer and I think like sort of the blossoming or birth of what it means to be a photographer. So in different ways, we got the we got a glimpse into the process by which they became who they were. Yeah, I mean, I really liked the way photography is is presented, especially by Delphine and Lucille's um, stories. It's accessible. Not everyone who sees themselves a photographer ends up being a photographer. I mean, these uh, women brought to this dream or this vision a kind of their own talent. And, and, and will. And will and I and practice and all of that. Um, but I, I like that that you get this sense that it's it's accessible. It's something that, you know, yes, yeah, someone like Marianne was apprenticed in, in Denmark and was trained, um, but you don't have to have that training if you have these other, other things, these other things going for you. I was also struck by the way that each of them talked about space. You know, sometimes when you're hearing someone's voice, you, you close your eyes and you picture mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. And for... Lucille, I pictured her in her kitchen dark room mm-hmm. and the process of making that and setting it up and breaking it down in the context of her her family life and her everyday life and with Marianne in her studio and mm-hmm. how important that mm-hmm. space became for her. And then for Delphine in the library, I loved the idea of having her sort of recognizing her raw talent and then saying okay now it's time to feed that and supplement it and that like the fertilizer for that was was scholarship was learning everything that she needed to know in this space her sanctuary the place that she did that was in the library I I wonder what did you think about Marianne's observation when she got here how you know she she's felt like a, a different Different kinds of opportunities available for women than what than than what she had experienced in Denmark. Well, it's funny. That's another thing is that when I'm listening to their stories, I'm seeing them in the context of the particular moment in which they were living. And so, um, you know, Marianne is coming to New York and landing in Brooklyn at the height of sort of a Madison Avenue culture that mm-hmm. was very male focused yes, at that yes. time. Um, even as it was so focused on the idea of the woman as the consumer of, right, right, of this right. photography. Right. But then she's also living in Brooklyn at a moment in which artists are beginning to move out of places in New York and settle and create these really sort of pioneering communities in Brooklyn. So it was so interesting thinking about her in the context of the development of artistic sort of cool culture here in Brooklyn. And I think Delphine represents the the next wave, right, of artists um, that are part of like that 90s, early 2000s artistic renaissance that we see happening in Brooklyn yeah, and with a hyper local focus on particular neighborhoods, the the um, exhibition that Delphine did here at Brooklyn Historical Society focused on one Crown Heights community um, called Tivoli Gardens, right. um, but also with a sort of I think a a very global and sort of Pan African perspective mm-hmm, to what mm-hmm, she does. So mm-hmm. really balancing that local and global in a way that does feel um, very true to the moment in which she grew up. One of the things that I liked also about Delphine's. Uh, understanding of her work in in terms of creating a, a documentary legacy as historians and as a historian I think that really spoke to me the idea that she understood what she was doing was creating uh, archival material for future 
uh, you know, investigators. Yeah, and that she was documenting not just the world in which she lived, but her own point of view, too. And so that was um, something really lovely about the way that she framed that, which that she understood her own subjectivity and that she could be both a documentarian of a place in a community, but also be recording herself and her approach in the annals of history as well. I think for me, the thing that tied the those interviews together was that these were all like a little bit of a like a room of one's own for them, right? Like that mm-hmm. they were able to carve out these spaces in which they thought deeply about their practice and they practiced their practice and were able to think about photography not just as something that they do, but as something that was a central part of their identity. It's March. The weather's getting a little bit warmer. People are coming out of their caves, and we hope you'll make your way over here to Brooklyn Historical Society. As usual, we have some really terrific exhibitions going on in the next month. You know, Zaheer, and I think our listeners know that I spend a lot of time thinking about the waterfront. We have a big exhibition on that coming out soon. So I'm excited for an event on April 18th, that's a Tuesday, called Superfund Brooklyn. We got a lot of super funding going on here um, in Brooklyn, Newtown Creek, Gowanus Canal, Wolf Alpert. These are all areas that are environmental remediation sites, and they've been sites of lots of smelliness and lots of political Um, debates. And so Jared Murphy, executive publisher of City Limits, is coming to talk to a panel of experts about the history of these sites, the cleanup efforts, and what this actually means for the borough. So that's Tuesday, April 18th. Doors open at 6 and the event starts at 6.30. It's just $5 to attend and it's free if you're a member. So we'll put the the link to tickets up on our show notes. So Zaheer, what are you staying late for? As you know, at BHS, we've partnered with Weeksville Heritage Center and Brooklyn Movement Center as part of our Voices of Crown Heights project. And we are now in the midst of a series of public programs relating to that project. On Monday, April 24th, at Repair the World, which is located at 808 Nostrand Avenue, a Brooklyn Movement Center will be hosting a listening session for the oral histories that it has collected as part of the Voices of Crown Heights project. The theme of this listening session is policing and community safety. The listening session will showcase local oral histories and launch a community conversation about how we define public safety. We'll have the details for this event as well as the link to RSVP. It is free uh, on our show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've truly made Brooklyn history since it's our 12th episode. Thanks to our guests, Nora Herding and Julie May. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us at iTunes or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Our production associate is Andrew Caberline. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia.